Greetings to you, beloved. If you've not already done so, then please join me in 2 Corinthians chapter 9. 2 Corinthians chapter 9. The title of today's sermon is God's inexpressible or indescribable gift. And I'll begin reading in verse 6 and read all the way through verse 15. 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 6 through 15. Hear the word of our great God. Now this I say, he who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And he who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must do just as he has purposed in his heart, not begrudgingly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you so that always having all sufficiency in everything, you may have an abundance for every good deed. Of your righteousness. You will be enriched in everything for all liberality which through us is producing thanksgiving to God. For the ministry of this service is not only fully supplying the needs of the saints, but is also overflowing through many thanksgivings to God. Because of the proof given by this ministry, they will glorify God for your obedience to your confession of the gospel of Christ and for the liberality of your contribution to them and to all, while they also, by prayer on your behalf, yearn for you because of the surpassing grace of God in you. Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. Father, we give thanks to you for the gift of Jesus Christ. And we pray that you would help us, Lord, in the next few moments, that you would open our eyes to see and our heart to believe what you have described about yourself from your word. And God, we pray that you would strengthen our faith, increase our obedience, cause us to abound in worship of you. Lord, help us to see that this is not a passage that's just merely trying to give people to empty their pockets more. But this is about the worship of you. This is about the glory of your name. This is about your way and your means of meeting the needs of your people with the riches that you supply in Christ. Father, help us to be a generous people. Help us to be a people just filled with real joy. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. The worth and excellency of a soul is to be measured by the object of its love. Let me say this quote again. The worth An excellency of a soul is to be measured by the object of its worth. Those of you that have been sticking around GC for more than just a few months or years would probably hear that quote and say, I I, I vaguely remember hearing that before. And some of you may uh, already connect that with Henry Skugel's wonderful work, The Life of God in the soul of man. This wonderful book was originally a letter of counsel that Henry Skugel had written to a friend. And somebody else picked up on this resource and made it into a book. Uh, Nearly 70 years later, a man by the name of George Whitfield was given a copy of this resource and read through the life of God in the soul of man 
And the Lord used this resource 70 years later as a means of the Lord's grace in bringing about Whitfield's conversion. The worth and excellency of a soul is measured by the object of its love. And what today's text does is it puts a scope. It zeroes in on the object of our love. We know that many objects compete with Christ's sole place on the throne of our hearts. It's not always easy living in faithful, joyful obedience to all of Christ's commands. We have flesh. We have things that war against that. Yet, if you're here and you are in Christ, you will affirm that in every occasion, the Spirit exposes these objects. The Bible provides the much-needed instruction for who we think and what we do with these objects. And we see that Christ, who is the object, demonstrates why He is better. Over and again, God proves faithful in showing us that Christ is better than the innumerable objects that seem to rival God's or Christ's rightful place on the throne of our hearts. And that's why we can join in with the apostle here in his words to this church and say, thanks be to God. Thanks be to God for the gift that He has given to us in Jesus Christ. Chapter 8 and the first part of chapter 9 addresses the need for the contribution for the saints in Jerusalem. Today's text underscores the glory God receives when Christians, namely here, specifically here, the, the saints at Corinth, when we give with generous joy from the resources that God provides through the endless bounty of Jesus Christ. There's much joy to be had when we're generous through the bounty that God's given to us in the infinite supply of Jesus Christ. In this text here, I see four, uh, question, or four, four breakdowns that I put in the form of questions with answers. The first one would be this in verses 6 and 7. What is, what is Paul saying here? The answer to that is God loves a cheerful giver. In verse 8, what is, what is God doing? Verse 8 answers that. God makes all grace abound for every good deed. Verses 9 through 11, I think, ask this question. How does God do it? Verses 9 through 11 answer it in this way. God supplies all that is needed to increase our righteousness so that we'll thank Him for it. And lastly, verses 12 through 15. What is it all for? Glory and thanks to God for His inexpressible gift. So let's look at the first question with the answer. What is, what is, what are the, what's Paul saying here? Verse 6. Now I say this. Some of your versions may say, uh, this is the point. So what, what is he saying here? Paul's using the agricultural metaphor of sowing and reaping or planting and the fruit that comes from what is being sown. The force of the verbs here indicate that what the Corinthians are doing now, they're sowing. And he's saying you, you sow sparingly, what are you going to reap? You'll reap sparingly. You sow bountifully, you will reap bountifully. So sowing and reaping are proverbial expressions. And listen to some of what Proverbs chapter 22 has to say for us to better understand the metaphor and to understand the theme of today's text as it relates to sowing and reaping. Listen to Proverbs 22, 8 through 11. He who sows iniquity will reap vanity, and the rod of his fury will perish. 
He who is generous will be blessed, for he gives some of his food to the poor. Drive out the scoffer, and contention will go out. Even strife and dishonor will cease. He who loves purity of heart, cue up, cheerful giver, and whose speech is gracious, the king is his friend. Also in Proverbs chapter 22, to help us understand a little bit more of wealth and giving to the poor, the first two verses in verse 4, a good name is to be desired more than great wealth. Favor is better than silver and gold. The rich and the poor have a common bond. The Lord is the maker of them all. The reward of humility and the fear of the Lord are riches, honor, and life. So there's more at stake here. He's, he's not talking about padding your pockets with an insurmountable uh, amount of wealth. He's speaking here of the generosity of God, the gift that we have in Christ. And what we just read stands in very stark and clear opposition to the worldly proverbial expression in life and the human experience that they would put out there in saying that you will receive what you put in. Let me give a couple of examples. So thinking again about this metaphor, what you sow, you will reap. So if you sow in a sense of studying hard, what should, be the, what, what, what should be the benefit? What should you reap from that? You should receive a good education and a good job. What about if you sow excelling at work? Well, the benefit or what you should reap from that is promotion. Better paying job. All the kind of money that you would want. What if you're sowing training, exercise, discipline of the body... Well, the hopeful outcome of that is that maybe you reap a good college scholarship or maybe you, maybe you go on to play professional sports. Or in this agricultural sense that if you sow a well-cultivated f- uh, field with the right soil, with the right seed, then you should produce good fruit. This is the proverb of life. This is wisdom from the world. And I, w- I do want to say there's nothing inherently wrong with the examples that I just gave. Each of these examples can be understood in light of 1 Corinthians 10.31. Do everything, whether you eat or drink, do it all for the glory of the Lord. So you can study hard to the glory of God. You can uh, do good work to the glory of God. You can train and exercise to the glory of God. You can work the labors of the fields to the glory of God. But there's something better here. There's something better than what the world purports as, if you sow this, you will reap this. There's different soil that Paul is going after in drawing upon this metaphor. He's planting this seed in the soil of their hearts so that it would bear the kind of fruit and bring the Corinthians the sort of joy that will glorify God. The world understands each of these examples as an approach to take if you want to reap good things in your life. You want good, you got to do good. It's it's the kind of selfish ambition and wisdom that the world would put out there. Paul reinterprets it through the lens of God's cheerful delight as the giver of all good things. We find a similar Christian ethic thread throughout Scripture. As Christians, we're forgiven much. Therefore, we ought to forgive others. As those who are followers of Christ, we've been loved much. So we ought to love others. And here lies the emphasis that is on the generosity that comes from the joy-filled heart. Paul is not advocating frivolous giving here. He's speaking on the freedom that comes from giving with a generous heart when we understand that the gift and the giver is God. Look with me at verse 7. Each one must do just as he has purposed in his heart, not grudgingly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. 
This is a, uh, this is a deliberate choosing. Each person must make a decision. In this context, the Corinthians had been made aware of the needs. They had enough information for them to seek the Lord to know what they ought to give or how they should prayerfully consider. This decision, each man must choose, each man must do just as he's purposed in his heart. This decision, this gift, is a direct reflection of the posture of the person's heart toward God and what you believe about the needs of others and how tight of a hold that you have on the possessions that have been given to you by God. God's not strong-arming the church here. It's not to be done under compulsion. It's not to be done begrudgingly. We're not providing those gifts in a sour way. But out of the overflow of a people who've received everything that we need in Christ. There is never a short supply that cannot, that cannot be met in Christ. Two examples, examples excuse me, that help us glean a little bit more from generous giving are Acts chapter 11, verse 29, and Deuteronomy chapter 15. In Acts chapter 11, a prophet by the name of Agamus spoke of an upcoming famine around the world. So there's impending famine that's coming. And here's what the disciples decided to do. In the, and in the proportion that any of the disciples had means. Again, context, famine is coming. They're not primarily thinking of hoarding, keeping... Each of them determined to send a contribution for the relief of the brethren living in Judea. Others oriented. Not for the gentle pat on their back because they knew it would be honoring to God. God loves a cheerful giver. Deuteronomy chapter 15. If there's a poor man with you, one of your brothers and any of you, your towns and your land which the Lord your God has given you, you shall not harden your heart nor close your hand from your poor brother. But you shall freely open your hand to him and shall generously lend him sufficient for his need in whatever he lacks. But beware that there is no base thought in your heart saying, the seventh year, the year of remission is near and your eye is hostile toward your poor brother and you give him nothing. Then he may cry to the Lord against you, and it will be a sin in you. You shall give generously. You shall generously give to him, and your heart shall not be grieved when you give to him, because for this thing the Lord your God will bless you in all your work and in all your undertakings. For the poor will never cease to be in the land. Therefore I command you, saying, You shall freely open your hand to your brother, to your needy and poor in your land. So the context here in Deuteronomy chapter 15, which is assumed that Paul has this in mind, is the upcoming Sabbath year of remission. Moses reminded them of the need to be generous, even though he knew that the temptation would be stronger during this time, because this would be the time that Israel, in this year of remission, that Israel forgive the debts of other people as a means of remembering God's deliverance of them. Sabbath remission. Forgiving others' debts as a means of being reminded of what they had been forgiven from and delivered from through God. And Moses is encouraging them, give generously. Keep your eye on them. Haifman says, Paul's use of Deuteronomy chapter 15 verse 10 is yet another indication that he understands the church as the continuation of the faithful remnant within Israel to be the eschatological people of God where keeping the year of remission like the Sabbath was a call to exercise faith in God's ongoing provision. Therefore, what was given to Israel 
to do every seventh year is now, under the new covenant, to be the daily pattern of those in Christ. So what was to be their pattern of every seven years is now the daily generous pattern of those of us in Christ. What is he saying? What is he saying? He's saying that God, is a, that God loves a cheerful giver. God loves a cheerful giver because there is none who are more cheerful than God. Think of the, think of the phrases there. He, you sow sparingly, you reap sparingly. You sow bountifully, you reap bountifully. God did not give His Son sparingly. God did not offer His Son begrudgingly. God did not send Christ under compulsion. He gave His Son and will through Him give us all things in Christ. God loves a cheerful giver because of what God has given, what God has provided in Christ. 1 John chapter 4 holds that out for us. God sent Jesus to be the propitiation for our sins. God sent Jesus to be the Savior of the world. God sent Jesus so that we might have life through Him. Thanks be to God for His inexpressible, indescribable gift. Titus chapter 2, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope in the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus, who gave himself to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. I think the Bible makes this point crystal clear. Christ came, was sent as the cheerful gift from the Father. Hebrews says that he was despised Yet, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. Christians were rich in Christ. The changed heart is one that both understands the cheerful gift from God and responds from a heart that has been radically changed by God. That's the only way the Christian becomes more generous is understanding the gift that we received from God in Christ. Another way to say that each one must do his purpose in his heart is to say that what you give demonstrates what is true of your heart. The selfless heart is generous, and the generous gift is given with joy. I've watched with joy in the generosity that this church has uh, extended to an individual that we recently voted to remove from our membership. That day was heartbreaking. And I think one of the natural questions that stems from that and the care that this church extended to this individual for a long period of time might be, was it worth it? Was it worth it? If that's the outcome, was it worth it? Was it... Was it worth providing a home for this individual? Was it worth the groceries and the tutoring and the rides uh, for the children and the child care and the counseling and the friendship? Was all of that worth it? Or was it just a total waste? It's a good question that we know the answer of too. When the, when, when the motive and the desire is honor and glory to God and good for people, especially those of the household of faith, then yes, absolutely, it was worth it. 
and we would do it again. It's inexpressible, inexplicable, inexplicable joy to give to God with no promise of immediate material return. It's why even knowing that what we know now, we could say with a clear conscience, we would do it all over again. You get joy. That's what I was saying earlier. I, I recall several instances watching this church serve, not just this individual, but several individuals with joy. Insurpassable joy that abounds to God in thanksgiving. God loves a cheerful giver. Second, what he does. God makes all grace abound for every good deed. This abound here, this present here, emphasizes the continual ongoing ability of God. God has the power and ability to make all grace abound to you. To exceed a fixed number or measure, to to, um, exist in abundance, to have more than enough, to have overflow. God is able to make it abound. All grace abound. The latter part there uh, in verse 8, so that always having all sufficiency in everything. This word indicates being independent of external circumstances, especially of the services of others. God gives grace in sufficient supply for every good deed. The meaning here is that the less a man requires for himself, the greater means he will have for relieving the wants of others. As one of the scholars had that to say about this phrase, every good deed. So to put it all together, God has the power with more grace than we need to supply to you in everything that which is both sufficient and in abundance so that the Christian has all that we need for every good deed. Romans 8.32 He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him, this same son, freely give us all things? God makes all grace abound for every good deed. So when a request goes out to our church for a need among us, here's the expectation. Every time one of those needs gets put out there, the expectation is that this church is going to collectively pray and seek to meet this need from and out of the storehouse of our cheerful Father. We're not looking primarily at our own ability and saying, yeah, I can do that. I can meet that. I can take care of that. Or I can't do that. I'm not going to do that. Collectively, we're praying and seeking the Lord to see how the Lord is going to meet that need through His people from His storehouse. That way... He gets the thanks. He gets the glory. And we get the joy. God shows His joy in the meeting of that need. One illustration that's had a profound impact on April and I, two days before we got married, um, I interviewed for a position at a church. The pastor at the time of that church, uh, unbeknownst to me, intentionally misled and lied to me. Uh, very, very respectable man in the sense at, at, at that time. Uh, made some promises to me and some commitments to me uh, that in a sense influenced our prayerful decision on whether or not to take a position at that church. Uh, our very first Sunday that, that we were there uh, in his first sermon, he, he makes a declaration that um, st- about the, the church is going to go on a spending freeze. And I just thought it odd um, in what he, was, what he was saying because the, the, the statement that he had made to me was that uh, I had a little more than uh, half a semester left of seminary. 
And he says, once you're done with seminary, you'll be able to come on here full-time. Once you come on here full-time, we'll be able to take care of you full-time. And then it'll be your decision whether or not April uh, wants to continue working or if she wants to work out of the home. So that led April and I to say, why don't, you know, she took time off from school with the intention of going back to school once I was able to go full-time in the church. So fast forward, we take the position, first Sunday, uh, I mean, I even asked him, I was like, this is, a, this is not like a large church, like, how can the church do this? Oh, they're very generous in their giving. And so, without filling in a lot of other details, uh, that was the first week. The third week, I show up and find out that the pastor's been involved in moral sin and I show up and ask if I can, uh, I'm asked if I can preach on that, on that particular Sunday. And, uh, and so fast forward to the time when uh, I'd finished up seminary and I was supposed to go on full time with this church. Uh, I learned really what was going on in this guy's life. I learned even more about what was going on in the church. And so at the time that this was supposed to happen, the deacons presented to us uh, a proposal that they had not talked with anybody about, but a proposal that they were going to vote on the very night of, you know, getting, ter- not terminated, but about 40% of the finances were gone. It was a small church. They were barely paying anything at all. And so you can imagine only being about eight or nine months married and uh, being put in this situation, um, what do you do? Like, what do you do? And the reason that I bring this up is because that proved to be one of the more precious times in our walk with Christ and our marriage. We sat at our table one particular night and did, did the budget, what's going out, what's coming in, both of us were in tears. It's not going to work. This is, this is not going to work. We do feel like the Lord has led us here, but this is, this is not going to work. And over the course of the next seven to eight months, not only was God providing the needs, we actually saved money during that time. I don't... I don't have any other explanation other than how kind and gracious God was to us in that season. It's not a get-rich-quick scheme. God meets the needs of His people through His bountiful supply. Third, how does He do it? Verses 9 through 11 Answers it this way. He supplies all that is needed to increase our righteousness for our thankfulness to God. Verse 9. He scattered abroad. He gave to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. The poor here is described as a man whose life and living is a struggle. The man who is the reverse of the one who lives in affluence. Psalm chapter 112 and Isaiah 55. The quotations here underscore the argument that one reason for God's provision to the Corinthians is so that they can in turn bless the saints in Jerusalem. It's a turnstile way of understanding the provision of God to bless others with the blessing we have received from God. Verse 9 is a direct quote from Psalm chapter 112 verse 9. In Psalm chapter 112, the blessed man is the one who fears God. As it relates to this quote, In verse 3, describes the upright as having wealth and riches in his house, that his righteousness endures forever, that he will not be shaken or fear evil tidings, that his heart would be steadfast, trusting in the Lord, and that he has freely given to the poor. Freely giving to the poor, in Psalm 112, was in praise to God. And something that the end of Psalm 112 says was a reproach to the wicked. The wicked would despise this kind of giving because it's not in keeping with their worldly understanding of their selfish sow and reap approach 
to God, or excuse me, to life. God flips it. Wealth does not endure forever, but righteousness does. This open-hearted giving from the Corinthians continues from the example of the Old Testament saints. They were merely, merely doing what they saw and observed from the Old Testament saints. Isaiah 55 is quoted in verse 10. And that passage being familiar with us, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. You who have no money, come, buy, eat, come, buy, my, buy wine and milk without money and without cost. This was what was in view here in verse 10. This text has eschatological implications because contributing to the needs of others, expressing what expresses what we think about the temporary and what we believe about the eternal. It picks up on what Jesus taught in Matthew chapter 6. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and rust can't destroy, where thieves will not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Their giving to the saints was purposeful. The needs were identifiable and were a worthy cause to be given to. A number of years ago, my, or, uh, in high school, my sister had two good friends who happened to be Mormons. And they were getting ready to go on their two-year mission trip. They were, in a lot of ways, really nice kind of guys. And so my sister went to my dad at one point and said, do you think, they're, they're getting ready to go away for two years, do you think it would be okay if we gave them some money to help them out in a little way? And I was so thankful the way my dad responded to these two nice guys by saying, we can't. We cannot contribute to someone who's pushing a false gospel. So this was not just frivolous giving. There was accountability there. The needs were clear. Now he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply. He, again, Paul here returning to the agricultural metaphor, God supplies the seed and, or God supplies the seed that the sower needs. You need food? God provides the bread. God supplies and multiplies for, and this is where the metaphor has eternal meaning, the harvest of your righteousness. This is not worldly wisdom that he's offering here. He's not accommodating selfish ambition. He's after the thanks from his people that he alone deserves. And he does this through his supply and demands of harvest of righteousness. God is the only source that can supply for the needs that we possess. God is the one who makes us rich in him, not materially, but in righteousness. Understanding that he is the source should encourage us all the more to go to him with our need. All of our needs. Don't hold back any request from God. Has his no toward any request that you've made to him ever been wrong? Think on this. I've had a lot of sincere, genuine, I think humble requests to God that have been met with no. And God's never been wrong. What do you have to lose when you delight yourself in God? His desires become your desires. You have not because you ask not understands that our request is not selfishly minded but rooted in a God that owns everything and has given all that is necessary for life and godliness. It shifts from personal needs to corporate needs. How, O oh Lord, might you use this church to meet this member's need? How, O oh Lord, might you use me and what little I have to meet the needs of others. The children that are, that are, that are with us. Have you ever had some, a possession in your hand? And maybe a brother or sister, or maybe a friend, comes and tries to take that possession out of your hand. How have you responded 
when someone walks to you and takes what you believe is yours. That's mine. That's mine. Here's, here's a way that, that you children and adults are a lot alike. Us adults have learned in a lot of ways. That, that's kind of silly to say, that's mine. Don't do that. Don't touch that. That's mine. And one way that we help our children is to think that to a degree, that, that gift or that toy, that might have been given to you. But a way to think through it is, how can what has been given to me, how can that be shared with others? So children and adults, rather than thinking, this is my possession, I own this. See it all as a gift from the Father. See it as, I'm not going to hold on tight to any possession and trust that the Lord will use it for His good pleasure. I mean, just this past week, just survey the realm. I had a few examples on here. But just look at the realm, our church's platform, to see the ways God meets the needs of this congregation. The progression of the verbs here are important for us to understand. The one who is presently given supply is the one who will futuristically supply. He supplied, he will supply. Here's how I understand the struggles of life. To the point of this struggle, I think, here's how I handle a struggle in life. Has God been faithful? Absolutely. Do I have any reason to think that God will not continue His faithfulness? I have no reason to think that He will not continue to be faithful. One more important note before we press on. As we have established that God supplies what His people need, but the illusion of Isaiah 55 and Hosea 12 help us to see a very crucial point in this text. The seed, which is the Word of God, gives or bears fruit in the increase of the harvest of righteousness. Why? Because giving does not make us righteous. Receiving does not make us righteous. Isaiah 55 and Hosea 12 help illustrate this point. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there without watering the earth and making it bare and sprout and furnishing seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so will my word be which goes forth from my mouth. It will not return to me empty without accomplishing what I desire and without succeeding in the matter for which I sent it. As it relates to furnishing the seed and bread, Hosea 10 verse 12, so with a view to righteousness, reap in accordance with kindness. Break up your fallow ground, for it is time to seek the Lord until He comes to rain righteousness on you. You will be enriched in everything. God's the supplier and He supplies all that is needed in Christ. Why doesn't, why doesn't the Lord just give it to them directly? Why does He use the saints here? It helps support the understanding and role of the church, the means through which God meets needs. Giving helps us have an appropriately loose hand on the earthly possessions. It's an eternal investment in Him. God's not a stock market that's going to crash. He's not a shyster trying to sell on something that is useless. Though he is the benefactor, we receive the benefit. He's not some Ponzi scheme or a a get-rich-quick. Don't buy any of that garbage. He offers better. Joy in the generosity. Thanksgiving to him. Surpassing grace to abound in every good work. It's remarkable that he is both the investment and the return right now and for all eternity. Lastly, what is it all for? It's for glory and thanks to God 
for his indescribable, inexpressible gift. Verse 12 through 15. For the ministry of this service, the ministry, the execution of this ministry filled up through their contribution uh, to contribute to the deficiency of their needs. This confession, this word is used to express conviction and it's, it's specific to the gospel of Christ. So the Corinthians, their ministry commendation was faith and works, word and deed. Faith, which rested solely in their profession of the gospel of Jesus Christ and works that accompany, that come out of those who have been freed from the bondage of sin and now serve Christ. Their gift didn't save them. Only Jesus saves them. But their commendation of their ministry is their confession of their faith in Jesus Christ and what flows out of that is generous and joyful giving. The saints in Corinth were free to give liberally to aid the relief of the saints in Jerusalem. Contributing to the needs of the saints was only part of what God was doing. They would give thanks to God. They would glorify God, their obedience and their confession of the gospel of Christ. Catch what is happening here in the midst of the joy and giving and the praise to God and receiving. The saints in Jerusalem are praying for and longing for the saints in Corinth. Not because they perceive them as the money folks. Let's just keep these people around if they're going to keep being generous to us. But because of the surpassing grace of God in them. They were praying for them. Longing for them, specifically for the surpassing grace of God in them. Don't you just love the language of God's word? There's, just, there's, there's not a word in the human language that can fully capture the amount of grace that had been extended and given, so they described it as surpassing. Don't you see what's taking place in God's cheerful bounty of Christ? Loved one, Your supply right now has a supplier. This is where we live right now. God is able to make all grace abound to us. He is the one who supplied what we need. He is the one who will supply what we need to increase the harvest of righteousness. Haithman said Paul's conviction that giving to fellow believers in Jerusalem is an essential part of the ministry of the gospel and a genuine expression of worship. That's why we include giving. I hadn't said anything about the tithe and offering. That's why we include giving as part of a worship gathering. It's worshipful. You're not writing that check with a scowl on your face. You're not giving that money angrily. At least we shouldn't be. But with joy. It's why on Thursdays, every week, part of my time in praying, I pray for our church's budget. Awkward. I pray for our church's budget. God, help us to be faithful with every single penny that's given. Man, I give thanks for our finance deacons, the faithful and wonderful job that they do. For our pastor, Brian, who oversees our finances, a faithful job that he does. It's an expression of worth it. Indeed, the collection is a ministry of the gospel precisely because it brings about worship. Its purpose is praise and prayer among those to whom it is ministered. The two essential elements of magnifying God's character We praise God for what he has done in the past and we pray for what we depend on him to do in the future. Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. Admittedly, I'm at a loss for words on what to do with verse 15. What do you do with that? Inexpressible. Indescribable. This is the the range of meaning here. Not able to recount. Not able to describe or set forth in detail. 
Those, those are the descriptions that the linguists are using in the original language to describe what this word means. One person said, God's exquisite working cannot be fully described with human words. You don't have to fully comprehend what it means. But we can give thanks to Him for who He's describing. The bread of life, the living water, the light of the world, our life, the resurrection in life, the good shepherd, the door for the sheep, the way, the truth, the life, the true vine. This is the freely gift given by God. So the worth and excellency of a soul is to be measured by the object of its love. The object of our love is the inexpressible gift that God has provided in Jesus Christ. Drink from Him. Feast from Him. Give with generous joy from His bounty. So that He can be thanked. He can be praised as worship unto Him. Let's pray. Father, we do give thanks to You for Your inexpressible gift. Father, we pray that You would increase our joy in generosity as worship to you. Lord, help us to hold with loose hands the things that you provide for us and help us to grip tightly Jesus Christ. We pray that you would use, well, not just, we want to give thanks to you for the years that you have used what this church has, what, how you've moved on this church to provide and give. We, we want to give thanks to you for how you have used that in the past. And we want to pray, Lord, that you would help us to be faithful. Lord, help us to, to give, not under compulsion, not begrudgingly, but from the joy that we have as you being the cheerful God. We pray this for your glory, for the needs of this flock and other places, and for our joy in Christ. In his name we pray, amen.